We're going to read from Acts 26. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to anoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things had escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, In a short time would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose, and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Let's pray. Father, I love these words in here, um, that we would proclaim the light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And so we pray today that your word would be proclaimed well and strongly. Pray that your Holy Spirit would speak through Ryan and pray that, that we would listen well and that your spirit would discern in us um, the truth of your word and pray that we would worship you well through that. In Jesus' name, amen. We are walking through the book of Acts and we're coming down the home stretch now. This is the penultimate sermon in the series. Yes, I got to use that word. It means the second to last. And so we're going to be wrapping up the book of Acts next week. Today, as you've heard, we're looking at Acts chapter 26. But before we get into that, I want to, I want to share just a, a quick little story with you. You know, I've had a bunch of jobs. The, the jobs that I've had, I've had lots of different ones. You know, over 30 different jobs. And you're thinking, how old is he, right? One thing that, uh, that these jobs have taught me more than anything else is uh, how to deal with people, how to serve people, things like that. The three jobs that I always say, you know, I, I hope my kids get to participate in as they're uh, growing up. Uh, one would be in the service industry, right? Waiting tables or something like that. One would be in retail, because you really get to know about yourself and people on Black Friday, right? <laughs> and uh, the other would be, frankly, a factory job, because you get to know what hard work is when you do that. And so those are jobs that I've all had before, but, but probably one of my favorite jobs, except for this one, of course, 
was when I used to wait tables. And the last time I waited tables was back in Las Vegas where Megan and I met. And before that, I lived in Louisville, Kentucky, and waited tables at a Logan's Roadhouse when I was in college there. And I can remember walking in, it was my first serving job, and I had this little, the way that I saw it was a little franchise of four tables in the restaurant. This is kind of like my atmosphere here. This, I get to set the tone here, I get to serve these people well. And, and there was this one Sunday, I, I usually never worked on Sundays, it was the Sabbath day, and, and I was at, at church and worshiping the Lord and, and serving and all that kind of good stuff. But one of my really good friends had a, a crisis that came up and he said, can you handle my shift today? And I said, you know what, I'd be happy to, I'd be happy to serve you in that way. So I show up on Sunday and, and I'm serving tables and... I'll never forget this. We were, we were all sitting around the, the cash register where you, where you ring, the computer where you ring in the order, and there was, there was about three or four of us, and, and Ellen was one of the servers that worked with us, and she walked back, and she's ringing in an order, and she says, Ugh, I hate serving Christians. And I thought, wow. And she, here's the story with Ellen and, and several of my coworkers there is, you know, we were friends. I had been working with them for about 18 months, and I would show up at their parties and, and bring my guitar. Yeah, I was that guy. And, and I would hang out, and, and, and we'd have fun together, and we'd go to the park and play Ultimate Frisbee and all that kind of stuff together. But, but when she said that, it struck a chord within me. And so I, I pressed a little bit as we're all sitting back there. I said, Ellen, why do, you, why do you hate Christians? She knew that I was a Christian and was training to be a pastor. And she, then she held up what appeared to be a $100 bill. And I'm thinking, what's the problem with $100, right? I'll take it. And, and it, then she showed me the check, and the check had, you know, the little spot for a tip. And, you know, customary tip is about 20%. But it was a 10% tip with a fake $100 bill that was a track, a gospel track. And she said, this is why I hate Christians. And I thought, wow. Thank God, is, is 18 months of laboring her life going to go away for one table? And... and my heart was grieved in that moment because of the, 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 the distance we had traveled together and the walk that we had, exploring more about God. But to Ellen, here was the problem with the story is that these folks simply preached a gospel that wasn't believable. It wasn't believable. They talked about a generous God, but they didn't show that God was generous by the way that they lived. These folks preached the gospel that wasn't persuasive to Ellen that day. And I know God is sovereign over her life. I don't know what she's up to today, honestly. But it makes me think about where we are at today and, and what God, the mission that God has us on. And the thing I love about Acts 26 in this passage is Agrippa responds to Paul and he says, What, Paul? Are you going to persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul's like, Yeah, not just you, but hopefully everybody in the room. And if you're in here today and you're not yet a Christian, I just want to lay my cards on the table. I'm going to try to persuade you to become a Christian today. And so is everyone else in this room that's a follower of Jesus because that is what God has put inside of us. It's not because we're better than you. It's not because we've got it together more than you. It's because God has been so generous and so gracious with us that we just want to share that love with you. And if you're in here today and you are a Christian my heart is that you would be more persuaded by the gospel so that you might be more persuasive with the gospel. That's our big idea today. The gospel becomes persuasive to us, and then it becomes persuasive through us. The temptation, guys, is for us to, to think about uh, how we can be more effective with these tactics and tricks about how to share the gospel in this diagram and that. But the reality is, is that worship drives witness. 
Worship drives witness. If we are on our face before the living God who has redeemed us because of nothing that we've done, we will share that witness. Because what a witness is, is it's a, it's a, it's a testimony about the supernatural power of God in our lives to other people. That's all it is. If God has touched us, if God has redeemed us, if God has saved us, we will share that. Now, the, the language in Acts 26 that we're getting ready to open up a little further here, it, it, talks, about, um, it talks about how God had sent Paul and, and Christians out uh, to, to, to help to save people. Now, when you read the rest of the Scriptures, you realize that we don't save anyone. God does the saving. But here's the deal. He's always been pleased to include His people in supernatural work. Have you noticed that? Have you noticed that? You, you see Peter, you see Paul, you see him healing these guys. You see you and you see me. We, see, we serve one another and somehow God is blessed through that. God has always been pleased to use us in His supernatural work. So before we get into Acts 26, I want to give you a, a quick uh, catch-up for the three or four chapters that we're skipping here. Uh, so in Acts chapter 21 and, and 22, Paul is in Jerusalem. He's had this heart and this burden to show back up in Jerusalem. We talked about it last week. And, and, and the, the Jewish believers are so enraged by Paul because he preaches this gospel that says it's not what you can do for yourself, it's what Jesus has done for you. And so a mob forms and they try to kill him. He's on the steps of the Antonius Fortress and they're getting ready to take him out of the mob so he doesn't get murdered because he's a Roman citizen, it could be big trouble. And he says, oh, can I, can I have a word, brothers? And then he begins to preach the gospel, he begins to share what Jesus has done in his life. And time after time again, what is Paul sharing? He's testifying to the supernatural power of God in his life. That's what he's doing. Acts chapter 23 and 24, Paul's sister finds out that uh, in Jerusalem there are 40 Jews that have made this vow that they're not going to eat until Paul's dead. It's pretty serious, right? We're not going to eat until, until Paul's dead. So, uh, and, and in the wake of that, Paul lets everyone know, Paul's sister lets everyone know uh, that, that this is happening. And so they sweep him up and they take him by night to Caesarea with 200 soldiers and 70 horses. I mean, they are getting him out of town. It's a big processional out of town in the middle of the night. They go what, it, what would be a, probably 100 miles north to Caesarea, which is the Roman capital of the area, so that he can be tried. Now, when, when he's there, he meets with this guy named Felix. Uh, he starts sharing the gospel with him. Felix is actually interested in what he's saying, but it comes to this point where it does with everybody who's becoming a Christian, where it, it, the gospel is so hostile toward our flesh, it, it shows us that we have nothing to offer God and God has everything to offer us. When he got to that point, it says when Paul was talking about judgment, his heart kind of became troubled. And he got frustrated. So he didn't know what to do with Paul. So he threw him back in jail for two years in Caesarea until another governor comes along who's Festus. Now, Paul is there with Festus, King Agrippa, who is the, you know, I've been talking about the Roman governors. Uh, king Herod Agrippa is the Jewish king of the area, and he's kind of visiting. And so Paul, has, Paul is here, and he's getting ready to testify in front of this guy named Festus, this governor, the new one. And uh, Agrippa happens to be in town, and, 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 and Festus doesn't really know what to do with Paul, so he kind of shoves it off on Agrippa a little bit. And, and so here we come to Acts 26, where there's this defense that Paul gives, and it's, it's, a, it's King Herod Agrippa II 
Jewish king. It's the, it's the governor of Israel uh, for Rome. And all these other people that are in the room. He's got quite the platform here. And then he enters in to share his story. And he's, he's been recalling the story of his conversion. And, and he's kind of caught up in worship because he's remembering. i got to imagine that he had tears in his eyes as he's remembering what God had done on that Damascus road when he had rocks in his hands ready to kill Christians and then he became one. He's recalling the story of God's goodness in his life. And then he says, Jesus, he recalls what Jesus says to him in Acts chapter 26, 18. This is where I want to press in in our first point. And our first point is this. The gospel is first persuasive to us. Let me tell you what that gospel is. Acts 26, 18. Here's what Jesus says to Paul, what he sent him to do. To open their eyes of unbelievers so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. That they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Mm. First thing that we see about this passage is this. That Jesus first persuades us by opening closed eyes. So, here, here's what you, know, you notice about the Gospel of Jesus. is that it's, really, it's actually really bad news before it's ever good news. You know what I mean by that? It's really bad news because it shows you that you are a broken sinner. And not only that, Jesus would go on to say that you're actually under the power of Satan. That's really strong language. That made me mad when I first heard it, right? Why did it make me mad? Because it showed that I was utterly hopeless on my own. It's bad news before it's good news. It, if the gospel doesn't offend your flesh and your way of life, especially the first time that you heard it, you've got to ask yourself if you really heard it or not. Because it is utterly offensive. It shows us that we can do nothing. It says, I cannot understand life pursue joy or please God without this other man named Jesus in my life. He says, I can't do anything eternal other than be apart from him. I can't have any goodness in my life apart from Jesus. We're reminded of this passage that we've gone back to often in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4 that says this. Paul's writing, he says, in their case, the God of this world, little, little g God of this world, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Is Jesus opening your eyes today? Is he opening your eyes? Are you seeing that like listen, if I were to pass on today, if something were to happen, would I have any security in, in my life, any joy in my life, anything lasting in my life? If your heart is troubled as you hear those words this morning, I just want you to know you're in a really good place, right? Because that's what the gospel does to us. It shows us that we're blind without God. And, and, and the blindness takes on different forms. Sometimes the blindness looks like really, 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 really good stuff, but it all points back to us. Sometimes the gospel looks like tons of money and tons of career success and, and the image of a perfect marriage and a relationship. But it's real broken on the inside because it's all dependent on us. If we don't see the depth of our sin, we cannot experience the, the, the gift of God's grace. It's impossible. 
It's impossible. And the, the great trick of the devil is to lure us into thinking that we've got to hide in the darkness. It's like, a, it's like maybe, maybe your house isn't like mine. Okay, I'm not going to assume that everyone, their house is like mine. I mean, there's like peanut butter jelly sandwiches on the floor sometimes. And anyway, I wake up in the middle of the night, I go turn on the light, and there's a bug there and it just runs away. And I, I want to say it's like a water bug or something. Let's be honest. It's a cockroach in my house, right? Anybody else there? Anybody want to be honest? I got a bug guy, cockroach is still there. I don't know what's up. And, and it runs and it hides immediately, right? Because it doesn't like the light. That's what we do with our sin. We immediately run to the darkness. And why do we run to the darkness with our sin? Because we think it's better to take care of business on our own than let God in. Amen? That's what we do. We run to the darkness with our sin. Are your eyes open to the schemes of the enemy this morning? Are you aware of the fact that you are blind in some spots? Even if you're following Jesus, there are some blind spots in your life. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, maybe you're just becoming aware that there's another way to live. What are you hiding in your life right now? This is, I love John Wesley. He ran these things called band group meetings, and they were discipleship groups, essentially. And they would ask all these accountability questions about what they're learning about God's Word and how they were living in community and this and that. And then it's like everything was over and what he wanted to ask his guys. And then he'd ask one more question. Is there anything that you don't want this group to know about in your life right now? It's kind of like the dagger, right? The, ah, twisting the knife in him. And guys, here's the deal. Whatever it is that you're hiding in your life, that's where the enemy is at work in your life. No doubt. Because the scriptures say that if we walk in the light as he is in the light, that we have hope and, and, and the gospel is working in our lives. We have forgiveness of sins. And we all have a propensity to hide. But Jesus says to Paul, what I'm sending you to do is to help open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light. And turn from the power of God to the power of Satan. So let's go to that second point here. So he's, uh, he's delivering, he persuades us by opening closed eyes. The second thing is this, he persuades us by delivering us from the grip of the devil. Because he says, turn from the power of God to, uh, of Satan to the power of God. And the truth reveals to us something important when we're uh, following Jesus, when we're not following Jesus rather. It, it reveals to us that we're under the influence of Satan. That is really strong and abrasive language, isn't it? I wish I could put it easier to you, but I can't. Because God, the, God's Word tells us that we're not under the influence of just our, you know, our habits and our, and our actions and our upbringing, but if we're not in the name of Jesus, then we're under the influence of Satan. And that's really terrifying, isn't it? That's super terrifying. It would be more terrifying if not for this verse from John, 1 John 3.8. The reason the Son of God appeared, Jesus, was to destroy the works of the devil. That's the whole reason why He showed up. That's the whole reason why He was born in Bethlehem. That's the whole reason why He spent His life in Galilee. It's the whole reason He went to Jerusalem and died on a cross that didn't belong to Him, was buried in the tomb that was somebody else's. Because He came to destroy the works of the devil in our lives. That's why he came. 
But if we don't acknowledge the fact that we're in darkness and we're hiding, we're under the influence of Satan, how can he deliver us? A friend of mine rented a, a home for a season in New Jersey, and uh, they moved to Atlanta thereafter. And, and uh, after they moved to Atlanta, they were all, like, really sick. Um, and and they, they started getting some diagnostic testing done, you know, on, on, on them and some blood tests and things like that. And, and they, they, they realized that they were exposed to mold. But, but when Danny shares the story of the house that they lived in, it was a, it was a nice house. You know, new carpet, you know, the, the paint on the walls, all the things that you would want to see in a rental home. So how were they exposed to mold? Well, black mold is mold that you typically can't see. It's hiding. It's under the carpet. It's behind the drywall. And the same thing is true with our sin. It is hiding in places, under places that are presentable, typically. Jesus has been on a mission to destroy the black mold in our hearts. The things that, that we don't want anyone to know and the things that keep us up at night and wake us up in the morning in absolute terror. Jesus has come to set us free. I mean, picture a contractor that picks up a sledgehammer to that wall and he just busts it open and he exposes it all. And you see it and you're like, wow, that's really bad. we got to get out of here. That's the same thing that the Holy Spirit is doing in our hearts. So when you see the parts of your life that are not presentable, I'm talking to Christians and people that are not yet Christians, when you see those places, make a beeline for Jesus. Because the enemy wants to cover it back up with drywall. Make a beeline for Jesus because he wants to destroy the works of the devil in our hearts. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes about the gospel, he writes about the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus, and, and, and then he kind of sings this little song where, where he's saying, you know, oh death, where is your sting? Oh, oh sin, where is your victory? And, and what is the sting that he's, what he's, he's talking about there? He's talking about the works of the enemy, that Jesus has come to take those away. The, the sting is what? It's, it's accusation. He's the accuser, he's the father of lies. It's condemnation. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What that implies is that there's only condemnation for those that aren't in Jesus. And he's come to free us from shame. He's come to free us from accusation, condemnation, and shame. All the things that sin makes us feel on a continual basis. The only way that goes away in our life is if someone else can give us his life. The only way new life exists is someone can bear that burden for us. And we see in, in, in places like Isaiah 53 that he's, he's condemned. He's accused, even though he was not guilty. That he bears the, the burden of shame. He does all of those. He, he, he diffuses the work of the enemy piece by piece like a Jenga tower until it falls down. And we see it for what it really is. What Jesus has come to do. And lastly, what we see in this verse is he, it says this in, in, in uh, Acts 26, 18, that they may receive forgiveness of sins in a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So he comes, he persuades us not only by opening closed eyes and delivering us from the grip of the devil, but also forgiving us and restoring us to the Father. Let me say this. 
Forgiveness is the only way to live outside of the grip of Satan. Forgiveness is the only way to live outside of the grip of Satan. Only forgiven people know Jesus. Jesus only knows forgiven people and forgiving people. That's what he says in, in the Sermon on the Mount. When, when, when he prays the, the prayer for the disciples and he teaches them how to pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. But see, the thing is, we can only forgive people when we are forgiven. Jesus has come to forgive us. And you say, well, I'm not, I don't need to be forgiven. You don't, your eyes aren't open yet then. Your eyes aren't open. It doesn't matter what the situation is, we all need forgiveness. John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. This won't be on, on the screens, but you can write this in your notes or turn to it in your Bible. I, I just want to tell you a story about a forgiven person in the Bible. There's this, there's this story where uh, Jesus is in the temple teaching and the Pharisees or the religious leaders of the day, they abruptly interrupt what Jesus is teaching and, and saying. And they bust in in the early hours of the morning with this lady who's been caught in her sin. I won't go into details there. But probably she doesn't have very much clothes on. They bust her into the temple and they say, the law says that we should stone her because of her sin. What do you say, Jesus? So they're trying to trick Jesus, right? What does Jesus do in the situation? He doesn't say anything for a few minutes. And he doesn't address the woman that they bring in anyway. Maybe he, maybe he kind of pulled her aside and, and uh, maybe gave her some more clothing or put her behind him. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. But he bends down and he starts writing something in the dirt. Now, it's one of the great mysteries that we don't know what he was writing. But he's writing something. So maybe he's starts with writing their names. And then it says he kind of he kind of sits up and then he writes again. Maybe he starts writing their sin after that. And so you're you're here as a Pharisee, a religious leader, a guy that's got his stuff together. And all of a sudden Jesus starts airing your dirty laundry, potentially. That's probably what he was doing. And you're here because you've caught someone else in sin and you want Jesus to stone her. You want him to do something about it. And one by one, Jesus, Jesus, he says, let him who has no sin cast the first stone. In other words, yeah, y'all are right. Says the stoner. But what's it say about you? And so one by one, it says, the scriptures say that the older men started to leave first. <laughs> because they probably, they had a little bit longer span to accumulate sin, right? They started leaving one by one, maybe over the course of a few minutes, and all of a sudden it's just Jesus and this lady. And he says, where'd they go? Has no one condemned you? There's a pile of rocks right there beside him. She says, no, Lord. He says, neither do I. Go and sin no more. Don't miss this. Jesus is the only one who can condemn you for your sin because He's the only one who has no sin. But He's the only one that doesn't because of what He's done for us. 
This woman is understood, not condemned, saved, not stoned, exposed, but covered in love and forgiveness. But receiving Jesus, receiving forgiveness for her was an incredibly passive task. That's the hardest thing for us, I think. Jesus fought on our behalf and fights on our behalf. And we receive the gift and He comforts and covers us in front of our accuser. Here's a good question, and I've asked this question before, and I've asked us to ask ourselves this question before, that we ought to ask ourselves. If forgiveness is such a big deal, we ought to think about it more. We ought to talk about it more. Here's a question to ask yourself each morning when you wake up. How can I live as the most forgiven person in the world this this day, this week, this month, this year? How can I live as the most forgiven person in the world? That's kind of a backwards question, right? Because we spend our lives trying to run away from the fact that we need to be forgiven. We spend our lives trying to keep ourselves in good enough graces through our own works and our own effort where we don't have to be forgiven. Forgiveness for us is kind of like this this thing we never want to have to ask for. And it's the thing that Jesus wants to give us over and over. But it's like when your grandma gives you a gift that you didn't have on your Christmas list. We, we, We don't want it, right? But forgiveness is the gift that we really need. It's the gift to be received. Have you ever received a gift before? Sure you have. I could probably ask you what your favorite present ever was, and you'd be able to tell me. Well, let's think about it in terms of a gift, because that's what he says forgiveness is. Can you imagine your dad gets you, he makes you the most thoughtful gift in the world? It's, it's, it's handmade with sacrifice, blood, sweat, and tears. Took him hours to make. And, and he comes and he presents you with the gift. And what do you do? You respond by doing this. Hold on, Dad. Let me get out my wallet. Visa or MasterCard? Discover? No, nobody takes Discover. You get out your wallet and you start, you start handing them the card. You say, Dad, look, I got to pay you for this. I got to pay you for this. I really like it, but I got to give you something for it. Guys, this is what we do when we don't pursue the gift of forgiveness that God gives us. This is what we do. We, we get out our wallets and we say, there's got to be something I can give you for this, God. I'm going to spend my whole life paying you back. He never asked us to do that because then we're motivated out of guilt and fear and condemnation instead of love. What forgiveness is the fact that we don't deserve anything that He's given to us, yet we get to enjoy it. We get to live in fellowship with Him. We get to live forgiven. And there's no other way to be Christian than to be forgiven. Jesus comes to do this for us. This is how He persuades our hearts. As He shows us everything. He shows us all of our dirty laundry. And then He shows us the way that we can be in fellowship with our Father. So here's my question. How do we sink ourselves more deeply into the Gospel that way? How do we keep our wallet in our pocket and receive the gift? How do we do that? We have to walk humbly among one another. And humbly before our God. Church, put your wallet up and receive the gift. Receive it. So, you see how persuasive that is? You see what God does with that? He says, let me show you everything that you've done. There's a place in the Bible where it talks about it. Here's a man who showed me everything that I've ever done. I think it was when Jesus healed a blind man. I could be wrong here, though. 
And I'm thinking, how is that good news? He showed me everything that I've ever done before. That's not good news. It's only good news when it's covered. And that's what Jesus does. So the gospel is first persuasive to us, and then it's persuasive through us. Acts chapter 26, 24 through 32. Let me remind you what it says. This is Paul before King Herod and Festus and the other guys that are there. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind, man. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. I'm speaking true and rational words. He'd begin dissecting how Jesus was the Messiah. How there were eyewitness accounts for Jesus' life, His death, His resurrection. It's a rational argument. you got to do something with Jesus. And, and then he turns to King Agrippa. And he says, for I am persuaded. No, no, he says this. For the king knows about these things. And to him I speak boldly. Hey, I know he's got a lot of authority. I know he's got a name. But I'm going to set that aside for a second. I'm going to respect him. But I'm going to be bold in front of him. For I am persuaded that none of these things escaped his notice. This hasn't been done in a corner. We didn't hide this. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? He's the king of the Jews. You better believe them, right? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time would you persuade me to be a Christian? I think he was kind of offhandedly joking. I don't think he was really asking for it. He wasn't really interested in a life change. As far as we know anyway. And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. So Paul is here before King Agrippa and the Roman governor Festus, these people that have a name. They have a name that other people would want to have. They're influential people. And Paul comes in saying, hey, I get it, you've got a name, but let me tell you about another name. Let me tell you about a name that will outlast this life for you. And this name must destroy any other name that isn't Jesus. That's that's what the, the truth of the Gospel is, is that God comes in with a sledgehammer to hunt down the black mold and remediate it and get it out of our lives and give us a better life in Jesus. So I don't care where you've come from today. What your story is, what your deed of righteousness is, if you could pull the scroll out. Or, if you've never even darkened the doors of a church before. It doesn't matter. What matters is you've got to do something with Jesus. Megan and I and the kids were on a hike a, a few weeks ago up in um, North Georgia on uh, part of the Appalachian Trail there. And um, <clears throat> on the way back, I shared this with, with some folks that were in our uh, discipleship training last week, but on the way back, um, we were... We were you know, we were getting to the point where we were having to talk about candy bars, our favorite candy with the kids, to, to, to kind of fend off the complaining so we could finish, because I didn't want to carry three kids on my back, uh, you know, down this narrow path. And so we're talking, and, and all of a sudden, this, this, uh, this family comes up behind us, and they're, they're walking at a brisker pace than we are with, you know, all of our kids in tow. And, and, uh, and I, I kind of get over to the side so they can pass, and, and I realize they don't really want to pass. And so uh, the guy's name's Leo, he starts talking to me, and and uh, Leah, we have small talk back and forth. Um, he's from Mexico, and, and we're, we're chatting it up. And, 
And then he asked the question that every pastor gets asked. So what do you do? And I'm like, okay, how long do we have left on this hike here, right? And so I tell him, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a pastor of a, of a church. I help people follow Jesus. It's what I do. And, and he goes, oh, well, good for you, man. That's not for me. And uh, he begins to, to then get on a soapbox and tell me about uh, how it's not for him. And, uh, and, and then I'm trying to persuade him with the gospel. I'm trying to say, look, look man, like, wh- what do you do, you know, with your brokenness? Oh, no, I ask him, like, you know, look at the mountains. Who do you think made these? I kind of go for that approach, and he's not buying it. And then I, then I say, what do you do with your sin, your, your brokenness, the, the shame that you have in your life? And, and at first he kind of like, I don't have any of that in my life. And then he pauses, and he says, you know, yeah, I've got, I've got some stuff in my My kids are... You know, they're running off the rails, and, and uh, yeah, it's just, it's just not good. I said, so what are you going to do with that brokenness? You just stuff it down and live with it? And uh, he kind of gets defensive a little bit. We've only got like a quarter mile left at this point, so I'm trying to wrap it up because this guy lives on another part of the state. And, and we start talking, and I said, you've got to do something with a man that claimed to die for your sin and raise from the dead. You've got to do something with it. You, you can be like Festus. He says, this man's out of his mind. He's crazy. He's a crazy man. Or you can say that none of that's true. The Bible's full of errors. He kind of said that a little bit. Or you can bow your knee and say, you know what? You're right. Because here's the deal. All of us are going to bow our knee to Jesus at some point. Every single one of us will. The question is, will you do it on this side of judgment or the other side? Because when you bow your knee to Jesus, everything in your life, even the brokenness and the pain and all the things that you want to avoid, they start to make sense in your life because you see that there's a greater purpose working for your good. That's what Jesus comes to do in our lives. So as I close this up, I just, just want to ask you this question. What spills out of your life? What spills out of your life? What ripples out of your life onto others? Because here's what I'm convinced of. You talk about what you're taken with. Right? I'm looking for a truck. I'm noticing every truck. I'm talking about trucks with people. I'm excited about fantasy football. I'm talking about who's on the you know, disabled list and did you make that trade and this and that and oh, what time do the Falcons play? You're looking for a house. You're talking house with people. Do you want a 3-2? you want a 4-2? Basement? No basement? You talk about what you're taken with. Friends, the reason we don't talk about Jesus is because we're not taken with him. We're not persuaded by him. It's, I struggle with the same thing. I mean, there are days in my week as a pastor that go by and I think, you know what? I don't really know that I consider Jesus a whole lot this week, this day. And you're thinking, man, you're a pastor. Like, you're a professional Christian. You do that? We do that, right? We talk about what we're taken with. What am I selling with my life? What has smitten you? What has captured you? If you have a hard time recognizing what that is, just ask someone that's close to you. What do I spend most of my time talking about? When we become more persuaded by Jesus, we can't help but talk about Him. In fact, there's this instance in Jeremiah chapter 20. Jeremiah is this prophet uh, to Israel, to Judah, I mean, and uh, he's, he's, he's telling them, hey, Babylon's about to take over. Y'all got to turn from your sin. And, um, and, uh, and one of the priests comes to Jeremiah and says, you got to quit talking about all this judgment, man. You got to quit speaking the truth to us. And Jeremiah responds with this in Jeremiah 29. If I say I will not mention him, 
or speak any more in his name, there is in my heart as if it were a burning fire shut up in with, within my bones. And I am weary with holding it in. I cannot. I mean, that's a prayer right there, isn't it? That the goodness of God's grace to us, the gospel, would burn in our hearts so much that we couldn't help but talk about it. Now, you don't get that by just trying to be more persuasive with the gospel. You get that by being persuaded by the gospel because we talk about what we're taken with. Church, can I be us? Can we be those people? Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for uh, <clears throat> Your Word to us this morning. We thank You uh, for the truth that the message of redemption is persuasive to, for those that have ears to hear it. Lord, I pray that my friends in this room and myself would have ears to hear Your goodness this morning. Lord, I pray for those in this room today that are tangled up within the lies of the enemy, that feel the feelings of shame, condemnation, and guilt, and it rules their lives, it rules their decision-making, and it robs their joy. Lord, I pray that You would set the captives free this morning. God, don't let us go another day living in that shame. Would you help us to see the bad news about ourselves so we can see the good news about ourselves? I love what 1 Peter 1 says. And he's talking about the grace of God. He says, this is things that angels long to look into. Father, what you mean by that, I think, is that it's better to have sinned and be saved than to never have sinned. That we get to know more of you as our Father in heaven because we've fallen and you've saved us. God, give us a passion for the things that angels long to look into. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.